on court. The monkey wants to speak. First one to speak is a monkey. Welcome. You're a monkey. Welcome to. How could you fall for that old thing? <laughs> All it's right. It's supposed to be a long thing of silence till somebody decides what the hell. You're it, right. It would kill a whole day if somebody didn't be the monkey. Welcome you're, to. You're taking a bullet. You're being a monkey. I, That's good. Welcome to. Is, can I? Should I go? They call this chemistry. <laughs> I, I can see. Welcome it, to Stand Up Memories. Anything but chemistry. <laughs> Kind of like boiling over chemistry. <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up Memories. This is Jackie Martling. I'm Peter Bales. And boy, do we have a great guest this week. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is John Blenn, Long Island writer, director, historian, critic, you name it. This playwright. Guy's got playwright. I should have said playwright. You should have said that first. I should have. John luckily, Glenn. luckily, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so much to talk about. This guy has seen everything on Long Island since when? When did you really start checking out the scene, both music and comedy? I first started writing for uh, my college paper at NASA Community College in 1977. Wow. So I, I covered national acts that came through the school there. And I that, became was a, that pre Good Times magazine? Oh yeah, they hadn't even started yet. Oh no! Well, actually, I was before I was at Good Times. Good Times started in 1969. It's actually one month younger than Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone started March 1st, 1969. They started April 1st. Was actually that purple mimeograph that smelled like in the back of the church room. <laughs> the dittos. <laughs> <laughs> dittos. I, who yeah. could ever Would I be hand? wrong to say Good Times was overpriced? It was, actually, it was a free publication, <laughs> but a very successful one for a long time. Still right? going. It's, it, yeah. it just went by its 53rd anniversary. That's so terrific. That's terrific. That makes them, other than Rolling Stone, the longest entertainment magazine in the country. Oh, that's great. Yep. Now, you wrote for them for a long time. 14 years in, in two different shifts, yeah. And you covered comedy and music? Comedy, music, theater, uh, basic sports. Basically anything that went into lifestyle, entertainment, arts, yeah, I covered it at some point or another. I am hoping that you didn't write it. I'm pretty sure you didn't write it, but it might have been the first review I got. We did a thing at my father's place, which was the name of a club on Long Island, called Long Island Ha Ha, and I played the guitar and sang and, and told some jokes, and me and John DeBella mm -hmm. were the host, John DeBella from LIR later on, right? And, and review, too. my review, and I'm pretty sure in good times, was usually obnoxious, sometimes amusing. <laughs> in the, my local post office, I was there every day, like I've always been. And that guy called me sometimes until the day he retired. Hey, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Never. I never shook that, but I hope you didn't write it, Blen. <laughs> no, it wasn't, but I, I respect their viewpoint. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Every time I'm up there, I'm like, you know, they, he, had he had a point. You know, every comic has had a bad review. I've had several. I wrote some of them. And <laughs> I actually made fun of a guy in the audience. I made fun of his jacket. He turned out to be a reviewer down at the Fort Lauderdale comic strip. He said in his review, listening to me was painful. <laughs> That's a, that is a great thing to tell our podcast <laughs> This is my partner, Peter. Listening to this may be painful. Why aren't you so injurious to your health while you're at it? I'm just being honest. Right. Now, you had to give negative reviews, and sometimes you might have 
been friends or known these people, you'd see them sure. again. How, how is that? How do you handle that? I don't think most people uh, handle criticism very well, and I, I think that you have to realize... I do! You, you're an exception <laughs> to the rule, of course, but... Uh, <laughs> Nobody does. Yeah. No, I, but I think you have to realize if you're going to bring something out to the public and put it out there, you've got to open yourself up to it. Oh, I, I've had course. people come up to me saying, well, you don't know what it's like to be criticized. I got a negative review on the second play I ever put up, and I will say it's one of the best reviews I ever got. <laughs> This guy named Carl Gordon, and he wrote for the uh, Merrick Life magazine, came in and reviewed a play I did called Trailer Park Etiquette, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was a, uh, a piece about a trailer park that I was inspired by on Route 110. And he wrote... If trailer you, Park Etiquette is almost an oxymoron. That's right? the whole point of the title. <laughs> I used to go for oxymorons in almost every single thing I wrote. Yeah. So great. So uh, he came and he saw it and he said, if you like Taming of the Shrew, if you like Kiss Me Kate, if you like, yeah. you'll hate this. And he went right on down the line on all the things he didn't like about it. And he wrapped it up with his last line was, if you like television sitcoms, then you know, this is kind of like that. But if you like theater, it's got nothing in common with theater. I actually ran into him a few weeks later in a supermarket in the area, and he thought I was coming down the aisle after him. He's like, hey, look, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you know, I just, it's just the way I felt. I was like, no, I just wanted to shake your hand. The look, the look and he was the bewildered. Positive, to look at stuff positively, that's proof that he watched it. He was awake. Of course, there weren't cell phones then, so he wasn't on the cell phone. But you, know, you have to pay attention to something to see. You know. even, even better than that is he was so detailed on why he didn't like it and why I appreciated it so much was anybody who liked his point of view would go, good, I'm not going. At which point, you're not going to get mad at me because you spent 15 <laughs> bucks to see a play. Okay. However, was, if you go, I don't, dis I, I like that stuff. I think this guy's an idiot. You're coming. Right, right. So this he, isn't for me, but here's what you're going to That's That's the objective that every reviewer really has to go at it with is yeah. define it, describe it, detail it, and then let the general public make up its own mind. So, I don't know if I could have handled the criticism like you did. I, and I don't know if you could either. I once introduced Jackie at a roast with, ladies and gentlemen, here's the man most able to dish it out and least likely to take it. <laughs> and then he comes up and his first line is, what do you mean by that? <laughs> no, you can't, you gotta, you gotta, even if you do roll with it, you gotta pretend you don't roll with it. You know, I, got, I have a, not a review of one of your plays, but I have a very weird story and I have no idea if there's any way you could remember this. And it's very weird because it was after I quit drinking and for some reason, I ran into a woman. You probably know of Maureen. It has the matchmakers thing. Yeah, okay. And she says, come on, Jackie, you know, I'll give it to you for free. It's supposed to cost $5,000, you know, but it's the, the best. You know? This is like maybe before match. This is so long ago. And she said, you know, I'll set you up with a couple of girls. So I do the thing and blah, 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 so she could use my name. And I, got, I went on two dates. The first date was a... Do you remember the movie? Was it Kim Bassinger who had one drink and she, yes, and she felt it was a perfect date or something was called, and mm -hmm. she just was dead drunk after a sip. All right, I went with this girl. I, I think Bruce Willis was the other half of that, wasn't he? Is that right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Willis well, no and Bassinger. So, I go with her to a local bar and she has a sip and she's a, a monstrosity. So that ends that. <laughs> so this other girl, I go on a date and I go, you know what? I'm going to take this girl to a play. I'll take her to John Blend's play at the brokerage. And the plays are small, 
And it's not a huge audience. There's probably maybe 40, but it might have been 25, however many people. But it's a cute little play, and we're there. And I've been on a million dates in my life, and I'm sitting with this girl, and we had a drink. She leans over and starts trying to make out with me. <laughs> Where is, you know how small the room is. The play's there. There's X amount of people, and people at this point 20 years ago still knew who I was, and I'm sitting there. I can't even believe that I would push somebody away, and we had to get up and leave. I'm like, I hope John doesn't <laughs> We We always like, tried to encourage that, because if you were busy doing that, you weren't throwing stuff at us. Well, so. I got to tell you. But, I mean, we were dead center, and, and she was nice looking. She, she must have been a little bit lonely. I don't know. Or uh, <laughs> mentally challenged. <laughs> Well, let's, <laughs> like, I put that me, in the box of what our let request. me just let me just tell the audience um, the end of this story is the charges were dropped. <laughs> yes, yes, I decided to let her off the hook. <laughs> How many plays have you written? Ninety six. Ninety six. Okay. And there's you have no ending number. You're going to keep going for the rest of your life. Yeah, I haven't written anything in the last couple of years because there hasn't been a lot funny to me. Yeah. You know, and, and there are some in the years, old days he would have written one since he sat down. Right. Yeah, I, I, I've written as many as 12 in a year, so uh, wow. it, it definitely is. You guys know, because you're, you write stand-up comedy, it comes and flows. You feel it. You can go on forever, and when it isn't there, you just got to wait until when it is. When the faucet stops or whatever, you know. Right. Yeah, I like to add a new joke every uh, decade or so. And, and uh, I didn't catch this decade. <laughs> I'm not there yet. You know, I'm getting there. I just tell my old <laughs> stupid jokes. It's only two like, years into this decade. <laughs> I, I tell my old stupid jokes, and there's nights, uh, not nights I'm working, but there's days where I'm like, every one of those jokes is so funny. And the next day I'm looking, I'm like, there's nothing funny. You know, like... <laughs> Just the way stuff hits you, you know. I'm sure it's the same with writing. You know, wow, that's a funny anecdote. That's a funny thing that happened. Like, no, it's not. Now, all three of us remember comedy in the '80s and the '90s, and now, can you put your critic's hat on, and don't pull any punches, and talk about some of the differences you might see between then and now? You are much older. <laughs> You haven't. I'm sorry. You, you haven't aged a bit. You look, you look terrific. And your eyesight's going. <laughs> well, certainly you guys, you guys know uh, even better than I am what the, the heyday was like out here. Uh, I, I remember like Saturday nights when you could go to Chuckles for a seven o'clock show. There wasn't a seat available. Right. Then you'd make it over to East Side for like the 8.30, o'clock show. There wasn't a seat available. Then you'd wind up in Lake Ronkonkoma for the 11.30 show. There was not a seat available. And the night before, you'd go to Brokerage one night. You'd go to Governor's the other night. They were both completely sold out. It was, and and just, it was red hot, and it was new. Always. You yeah. know, like, I remember I, I booked Governor's, an opening night at Governor's. They were literally packed in with a shoehorn, but it was new, and but it just maintained for so long. But I think it started... All of a sudden, there were so many clubs. There was right. a club in every city, in every little town, and all of a sudden, everybody's like jumping on the bandwagon. Sure. All of a sudden, there were like 150 comics in 1980, and there's 150,000 now, you know. Right. But, well, I mean, just go onto YouTube or, or any of those things and see somebody's name in comedian, right, like after their name and the, in their title. They define themselves by that, but, but yet, right. are you working all over the country, or are you defining yourself as comedian by seven open mic nights? Club a week? owners complain that you know somebody has seventy-five million hits on TikTok or YouTube, mm -hmm. 
So they book him. This guy's got to be somebody. You know, it's like we send in Howard Stern, my comedy albums. He's, wow, this guy must be somebody. Yeah, yeah. He's somebody who made albums for himself. <laughs> but like, that was a calling card. And they're like complaining, like, the guy wasn't funny at all. I said, well, he had, people looked at 10 seconds of him right. on the internet, but that's, but those those packed out clubs in the 80s are legendary. People have heard about it. People have always talked about what happened. Why did it dip down? Yeah. And I think there are different factors. In the early 80s, being a comedian was like being a fighter pilot. That's how cool it is. And how special it was. And how special it was. That's my point. And now everybody's cousin is a stand-up. And to be a stand-up, really, you just have to do a show someplace. And well, I'm okay with that, but I mean, they're different levels. My point is, we used to pack out the East Side Comedy Club on Monday nights. Right. Monday nights, and now the clubs are doing open mic nights on the weekend. What the hell happened? I think the question he really is asking, and I'm asking, was it as great back then as we remember? I really think it was. Oh, I think it absolutely I think, well, was. I don't think it's just something that's clouded in smoke, like, oh, that was so great. You know, and then you think back to your the date with that girl, I'm like, no, she was a pig and it was horrible and what am I talking about? Right. The, the places were packed and we, we, a lot, I didn't know what I was doing, but we were all flying blind and it was, and it was fun, but it was, I think everybody was discovering it. The, the audience was discovering it too, you know? I mean, there, there were really remarkable craftsmen in those days too, in terms of what they were writing. It was a, it was a brand new frontier. Uh, there were a, a lot of people with very unique visions that were very different than anything that had come before them. <clears throat> I mean, I remember when I, the first time I saw Sam Kinison, I couldn't believe my eyes watching him. It's like, who is this guy? And I was at Steve Martin at the Nassau Coliseum when he was the first guy, first comedian, to play an arena. Yes. He's in a basketball arena, yes. you know, doing things on stage like, I want to thank the upper deck for coming, so I did a special trick for you, the disappearing dime trick. I, I was <laughs> just going to ask you, do you remember him taking out the dime? Oh my God, it's classic oh. stuff. Oh, man. And then after him, Murphy, of course, got to the, to the arena level. After Murphy came Kinnison. After Kinnison came Clay. You know, and right now we have a few of them, but there's not really all that many that have made that jump when you right. stop to think about now, it. Now, let's give credit where credit is due. George Carlin. Actually Ru never got to arenas. Always played, played large theaters. Was that his choice? But yes, absolutely was his choice. made for comedy. Right. They just aren't. It's made and I think when those Sam and Dice were, and them were doing it, they didn't have those monstrous screens yet. Correct. They, no, there they were. You know, you went to see, you went to see, uh, who did I go to see? Jethro Tull. I think I went to see Jethro Tull in the, in the Detroit Cobo Hall. And you sit in your seat and they're this big. You're like, what am I doing? You know, do you know how you know somebody's an idiot when you say to them, do you like Jethro Tull? And they go, yeah, he's great. <laughs> that is a sure example of somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. Listen, Lenny Bruce started it, George Carlin came along, Robert Klein came along, Steve Martin came along, yep. and people realized as you're in the 70s, you don't have to wear a coat and tie and talk like you're in the Catskills. Uh, there's something Watch new. Don't step on toes. Here. There's something new <laughs> happening here, and it was special, and it was different. I remember being a, uh, just around my, the beginning of my teenage years, going to my library in East Meadow and finding an album from Atlantic Records by a guy named Chris Rush. Oh. And we brought it home and went, what is this? Wow. You know, Chris and, and to Rush. meet him all those years later after listening to that as a kid, a little bit before when I should have been listening to it, 
was just, it was remarkable. I still remember that album cover. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was just, it, first Rush. And, you know, a kid with, baby with his finger in an electric socket and a kid kissing his date and wetting himself, you know. He came to my college, Northwestern University, and performed. And I was there and in the audience and inspired beyond belief by what Chris Rush did. And, and Robert Klein and Chris Rush just pushed me into comedy. I couldn't believe what I saw right. when I saw Chris, Chris Rush doing, doing what he was doing. It was so different than anything on television even. He was, a, he was like three feet tall. We actually worked the same club. There was a club and I think it lasted two weeks. I think he refused to even do the shows. It was a place in South Beach called the Cuckoo's Nest. And the waitresses were dressed as nurses. <laughs> it was some guy from up here who, uh, somebody's going to remember, somebody's going to send us an email and say, I remember that, I forget who the guy was, but he thought he had a home run. It was because it was so, it was unique because it was such a bad idea. <laughs> oh, Chris Rush had the single best ad lib I've ever seen in all my years in comedy. But I'm getting a signal here, this has been terrific. This has been Stand Up Memories, and we're going to come back with more in the future with the incomparable John Blank. Did you just cut off your own story? Well, it's a teaser, actually. That's a technique <laughs> that professionals use, something called a teaser. No, that's called piss off the viewer or the listener or whatever they are. We, did we that. don't even know if you're listening we did or that. watching. All we know is we have a great guest, John Blank. He's not going anywhere. So if you happen to tune in tomorrow, next week, last week, whenever he's here again, he's going to be here again. Am I right? You are right. See you next time. That's good. That's good. That's Peter Bales. Jackie Marling. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Hey, a new episode of Stand Up Memories every Wednesday. How exciting is that? It's starring me, Peter Bales, and right here, Jackie the Joke Man Marling. Please follow us on social media. Search it out. What is it? MeSpace? MySpace, your space, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Duda, Duda. <laughs> <laughs>